scripture, let me ask you please uh, to pray with me. Uh, Father in heaven, now as we come to your word, we pray. We must pray. It would be arrogance on our part to open this book thinking that we can master it without a work of your spirit giving light to our eyes. So we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come now and show us truth. Uh, these words are well beyond us to comprehend, to understand as we try to think about our Lord Jesus. So I pray, Holy Spirit, you have come to glorify him. Please, please do that. Uh, we desire to see uh, Jesus. So help us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to Colossians, please, in chapter 1. Colossians in chapter 1, please. I want to read verses 15 through 20. I won't be able to do all of that uh, justice today. We'll pick up on more of it and kind of work and weave our way around it. I know that's a surprise also. But, um, but Colossians in chapter 1, please, verse 15. Hear the word of God. He, the he there, is Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. I want to take note of a very important question for us to ask ourselves. It's not the most important question to ask ourselves. It's the question you should ask after you ask the most important question. So I'm going to start there with the second question. Really, it comes from a catechism. It comes from an old catechism. The word catechism reminds us of church, reminds us of teaching, maybe Sunday school, whatever. A catechism, it's just, it, it comes from the sphere of education, that word. Catechism just means to, to question and answer. It means to learn by question and answer, to learn by memory, to learn by rote. It's a great way to learn in all circumstances, but most especially in a, in, a, in a culture that doesn't have a lot of books and we can't write all this stuff down. So questions and answers, catechisms. We, we know this uh, in our tradition with the Westminster Confession of Faith and catechisms. We have two catechisms with our confession, a shorter catechism and a larger catechism. You know the difference between the two, one shorter uh, than the other. And one is really for children. The shorter catechism is, was for the children. The larger catechism was for the adults. Now, we've almost entirely left the larger catechism out in these days, and we only study the shorter catechism, which is a great sadness to me, but also... Uh, uh, tells us something about our culture, perhaps, and the depth of our theological understanding and perhaps desires. But the catechism question I want to pull from is not from Westminster. It's from the Heidelberg, and it's a question I'm going to take completely out of context. I'm not going to give the answer because it doesn't, well, it matters, but not to me right now. The question is what matters. It's question number 59, so I'm sure you know that. Question number 59. And the question is simply this. What is the value 
in believing all of this? What's the value in believing all of this? It's, it's kind of the so what question. It's, it's after we, we state all the things that we believe. So, so, so what? What's the value in believing all of this? And that's applied to the most important question that any human being can't ask themselves. In fact, it's the question that we all must really ask ourselves if we are to have life. And it isn't that we only ask it, but we answer it rightly. And that is the question, who is Jesus of Nazareth? That's what this passage is about. Who is Jesus of Nazareth? The Bible begins, even in the very opening passages, the opening chapters, speaking of him, setting all of this up. It's curious to me, I wonder what it would be like if you read the Bible page by page. That is to say that if you're only given one page at a time, beginning with page one, and you didn't know there were a thousand pages to come, all you had was page one. You read chapter one, you read this great creation hymn, you'd read this great praise to God on, in his wisdom and his power and his love and how he created human beings, created all the world, created human beings in order to, to worship him, to image him, to reflect him, to, to know him. Then you, you come to chapter 2 and, and you get into more details about uh, humanity, about, about human beings and God's creation of us and the purpose for which we were created, what it means to image him to take dominion. And you'd realize that Adam was created, then Eve. Adam was created and he was given this, this test to see if Adam would really, really submit to God and to follow him and to worship him. And to bow to him as God being the only one who could define good and evil. So he says you can eat of every tree except for this one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because that was God's domain. He was the one to define good and evil and to lay all of that out. God made a helper for Adam so that, that he could take dominion. So they could live and submit under God and, and rule and reign in his stead on earth. And image God. Question, would she help him? So you've been fed these first few pages. Then you're fed another page, and, and that page is a sad page. That, that page comes across as this one Satan who comes upon the scene to, to lure, to tempt this creation, Adam and Eve, away from, from God. First he comes to Eve, the helper, and deceives her into exalting herself above God to eat of this tree. And then she feeds to Adam. He eats as well. And life, it seems, caves in. God had said, if you eat of this tree, you'll die. Adam runs from God and, and tries to hide. But he can't, of course. How silly. He can't. But God comes to him. We expect at that point in time, since we don't know, there's another thousand pages, we accept it, expect at that point in time it to be over, that, 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 that this uh, will be it. But, but God had made a promise. He made a promise as he cursed Satan, as he cursed the earth, and even humanity, that one would come from the seed of the woman and crush the head of the serpent. He hadn't come yet. So if, if he'd caught that in the previous page, you'd think, what's really going to happen here? Because he's supposed to die, but, 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 but yet this promise has been made and the promise hasn't been fulfilled. So either God isn't going to be faithful to this promise, either I don't understand it, what's going on? And so you read that God kills an animal rather than Adam and Eve covers them, clothes their nakedness, and lets them live, at least physically, during that time. But there's a cut off from God. They can no longer live in the garden. <coughs> then you're fed another page, chapter 4. And in this page, it begins by saying that Eve knew Adam, wink, wink, and 
conceived a child, and she said, a man has been born to me. Now at that point, wouldn't you ask, is he the one? Is this the one that had been promised? You don't have to read too far to realize he wasn't. But that's still in the mind. That's still the question that flows from those opening chapters of the Bible. Who is this man? Who is this man who is to come? And with the birth of every man, there, there might be this suspicion. Is he the one really? And he isn't for quite some time. Page after page comes. You, you, you read of this man, Abraham, who becomes Abraham. He, he's not the one. But another promise comes that says that this man is going to come from his seed out of his one of his descendants will come this one who will bless all the nations of the earth. We, we get pictures. We don't necessarily know their pictures of him necessarily, but we get pictures of this one who is to come in the priests as the one who will represent people before, the God, before God as the sacrifice who will be the very substitute for their sins, as the prophets who will be the very voice of God, as the kings who will righteously rule in God's stead. We see it in certain events like the Exodus. This one who will come will be like Moses and deliver We hear the prophets speak of this one who is to come, that the government will be on his shoulders, that there will be a rule and a reign, a kingdom. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, and of his rule and reign, his kingdom. There will be no end. We read of this, yet he hasn't come. And page after page after page we're being fed. And then we come into the Gospels and we read of this angel coming to this man and this woman saying that that, that she is going to conceive, but, but not by this man, but by the Holy Spirit. And she will give birth to this one whose name will be called Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. They take this Jesus baby to the temple ultimately to be blessed and for purification of Mary. And this man, old man, Simeon says, I've seen it. This is the consolation. This is the salvation of my people. He will be a light to the Gentiles, so even bigger than my people. And a great blessing, consolation, salvation, glory to my people Israel. This old woman, Anna, who has spent her life as a widow in the temple area, there she has been fasting and praying. When she hears of this, when she sees this baby, she lights up and she begins to speak of the redemption of Israel, this being, this very one, this man who is to come. And the question that we read of the Gospels throughout is, who is this man? You remember there was a time that Jesus had been teaching and, and he was with his disciples. He says, let's get in the boat and go to the other side. While they're in the boat, a huge storm comes up. Probably made last night look like a nothing. Uh, great storm comes up. And these are fishermen. These are men who are familiar with the sea. They, 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 this is their life. They're as comfortable on that sea as you and I might be walking along a path. And, 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 and the storm comes up and it scares them. So they look to Jesus and he's asleep. He's asleep. If they would have really known who he was, they simply would have clung to him because no matter what was going to happen, he wasn't going to die. But they woke him and they were afraid and and, and Jesus said, where is your faith? And he looked at the storms and he said, shush. And they said, who is this man? And he would speak with authority and people would say, where does this authority come from? Where does this power, where does this wisdom come from? Isn't he the carpenter's son? Isn't he Mary's son? Aren't his brothers and sisters around us all the time? Who is he? Why does he have this kind of authority? 
Remember when John the Baptist was in prison? Began to wonder if he was in prison for the right cause. And so he sent his disciples, his followers, if you will, to Jesus. And he said, go to him and ask him if he's the one. So Jesus tells the disciples of John to go back and tell John simply this. Tell John what you've seen and heard. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. The blind see. The deaf hear. John would hear that and say, ha, he's the one. That's exactly the one that Isaiah spoke of. And he would come and he would be that very one to bring freedom to prisoners and health and wholeness. He would be the salvation of his people. Early on in Jesus' ministry, as he was calling his disciples together, he went to Peter and, and, and Philip, and they, they took him to Nathaniel. And, and Nathaniel said, well, who is he? I mean, can anything good come out of Nazareth? The question is, where's this guy from, really? Well, if he's from Nazareth, don't bother me. Because it's like being from Columbia, Missouri. I mean... Ooh. What? I mean, what can come out of there, right? I mean, he said, if it's from there, just don't bother me with that. But then he met Jesus, and Jesus said, oh, yeah, I saw you sitting under the fig tree. And all of a sudden, Nathaniel realized he wasn't from just Nazareth. There's more about his identity. There's more about his origin. There's more about his place of coming than just Nazareth. so important, this question that Jesus even ask his disciples, who do people say that I am? See, that's a crucial question. He wanted to know, how is this getting out? And are you understanding what's really important about me? It isn't simply the things that I say. It isn't simply the things that I do. It's who I am. It's who I am that gives power and authority to what I say and what I do. He would say some outlandish things. You should memorize the I am statements from John's gospel. Jesus saying that he is the bread of life. That he is the light of the world. That he is the good shepherd. That he is the door. That he is the resurrection and the life. That he is the way, the truth, and the life. That he is the true vine. Because as he makes those statements, you realize that if he's not who he claims to be, he's a nut or he's deceived in some way. Because he's claiming to be the very one Everyone must receive bread in order to live. He's claiming to be the very one uh, who lights and the very one through whom God is really seen. I forget who it was who said. Was it Lewis or someone who once said that I, I don't believe in the sun only because the sun, S-U-N, only because I can see it, because I, but because I see everything else in light of it or because of it. And you see, Jesus, I'm that. I'm, I'm light so that you not only see me, but you see everything. You understand everything in light of me by way of my light. He said, I'm the good shepherd, just like God is our shepherd, so that you shall not, when I'm that shepherd, trust in me. I'm the door. You can't get in other than by way of me. I'm the resurrection and the light. There is no resurrection from the dead to life apart from me. There's only resurrection from the dead to eternal destruction. Eternal punishment. He says, I'm the way, the truth, and life. There's no other way. I'm the reliable one. Truth, there's no other life besides 
me, he said, I'm the true vine. Unless you're attached to me, unless you abide in me, you will die. So all of those outlandish statements Jesus makes concerning himself. On another occasion, people came to Jesus, uh, Pharisees. He was speaking to them. And they said, but we're Abraham's sons. We're Abraham's children. Uh, We don't really need you. And Jesus looked at them and said, before Abraham was, I am. Now, you would expect Jesus grammatically to say, before Abraham was, I was. But he doesn't. He says, before Abraham was, I am. Meaning, I am. That was the very name of God. That was the name of God that, that, that God gave to Moses when Moses said, okay, you're sending me back to Egypt. Who shall I say sent me? God said, tell them I am. That's who I am. I am. I simply be. It's the verb to be. Jesus said, I am. And they knew exactly what Jesus was saying because the scripture says they took up stones to throw at him. Because he, being a man, was making himself out to be God. They knew exactly what Jesus was saying. They knew exactly what he meant by all of this. Jesus would cast out demons. They would say, who is this man? How does he have this kind of authority? Jesus, when he went before Pilate, Pilate said, are you the king of the Jews? Always people questioning Jesus about his identity. That's what was really important in all of this. It's no wonder then that as we read through the scripture, we find passages About him, this one I read for our call to worship from John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Amazing statements about the Lord Jesus. Philippians chapter 2. Though he was in the form of God, he didn't regard quality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very form of a servant, taking on human flesh in our likeness. Being obedient even to the point of death, even to the point of death on a cross, this Jesus. When Jesus was praying his high priestly prayer, you remember, he said, Father, restore to me to the glory that I had before I came. This Jesus. Uh, the author of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 1, as he's, as he's laying out who Jesus is, uh, puts it, puts it like this. He says, Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he's spoken to us by his son whom he has appointed the heir of all things through whom also he created the world. So he's the creator. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. That's this one. Jesus. Now, it shouldn't surprise us that in the early church, not only in the days when these epistles were written, but in the centuries following, that people would attack the very identity of Jesus, the very character, the very nature of Jesus. It shouldn't surprise us. Jesus warned us. He said there will be false prophets. Be careful. There must have been those, even during the writing days of the writings of the apostles, as they wrote concerning the nature of Jesus. And so we had people arise uh, in the 4th and 5th century, most especially. There was a man in the early 4th century named Arius who came and said, Jesus is really not 
God. He's a created being. Oh, he's a super being, a super created being. He's really great and awesome and all of that, but he isn't God in the flesh. He isn't God with us. He isn't deity. He's simply man. Well, that gave rise to a great debate. In fact, it's said that in certain parts of the empire in those days in the fourth century, everybody was talking about the person of Christ because this controversy began to stir because Constantine, who who wanted the empire empire to be unified, realized that even the church was having this discussion and, and, and it wasn't unified. And so he called this council, the Council of Nicaea, to unify the church so they could have a unified empire. But people were talking about the, the person of Christ. And I read that in church history with great envy. To desire to be in a place at a time when everybody's talking about Jesus. It's easy to get off that discussion. I remember a number of years ago, a dear friend of ours, Scott Ketra, he was director of Campus Crusade at the time, uh, hosted a, um, a uh, uh, seminar Um, on campus to talk about sexuality. And we supported that. We all supported it. We all went. It was great. It was really a well-done seminar. Hundreds of people came. So I met with Scott about a week later and said, how are things going? Because I I said it was a great talk. It was a great seminar. I really liked how the guy put it all together. He brought it to Christ, so forth and so on. And Scott said, well, it's not really been very successful. And I said, why not? And he said, because we wanted to make Jesus an issue on campus, and instead we made sex an issue on campus. That's what's come from this. Nobody's intention, and on another day, maybe it would have been different. But I could see the sadness in his face. I felt it with him, because both of us wanted to get up this other topic onto Jesus to to get people there. And so there are times when abortion may be the big issue, and it's a great issue, and one that must be hashed out and discussed and all of that, or homosexuality, uh, or creationism and evolution and all those topics, great topics, must be talked about, must be dealt with. But remember, our hope and our goal ultimately is to move all of that on to Jesus because that's the real question who is Jesus of Nazareth and so at Nicaea that was the question that was asked who is this the great champion was an understudy really to the to the bishop of Alexandria whose name was Alexander makes it nice but this champion was a man by the name of Athanasius and Athanasius came tenaciously with the right view concerning Jesus. And he fought for that right view. And so even this morning as we, as we read, read this Nicene Creed, we could have read the parts or all of the Athanasius, Athanasian Creed, although it's probably not written by him. But this Creed of Nicaea concerning Jesus, we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God. You can see how language is layered and layered and layered here to try to get it right, to try to say it. Do you know how difficult this is? you know how difficult it is to say right things about God? I mean, as a husband, and as I talk about my wife, it's hard to, to say right things about her. You know, because she's always correcting me. <laughs> and she's right to do that. It's, it's hard to describe even another person another human being, and get that right. But the thing to try to describe God, especially something that we have no category in our brain for at all, God, man, 
God in the flesh, 100% human, 100% divine. And you can see it just takes words to, to pile on each other and not to push too far. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds. worlds. Uh, the old, uh, there's a newer language that says eternally begotten of the Father. He's the Son. So he must have a relationship to Father. And so the expression is, is, is either begotten before all worlds, that is, in eternity, or eternally begotten of the Father. Very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. And then it talks about his work in our salvation. That word begotten is a funny one. We don't use it very often. I don't, other than in this kind of context. Uh, someone gives birth, I don't say, oh, look at the child she begot. Right? We just don't do that. C.S. Lewis writes this about the word begotten. He says, one of the creeds says that Christ is the Son of God, begotten, not created. And it adds, begotten by his Father before all worlds. Will you please get it quite clear that this has nothing to do with the fact that when Christ was born on earth as a man, that man was the son of a virgin. So he's saying this isn't about the virgin birth or conception of Jesus. This is about Jesus in eternity before that. So we are now thinking, uh, we are not thinking about the virgin birth. We're thinking about something that happened before nature was created at all, before time began, before all worlds. Christ is begotten, not created. What does it mean? We don't use the word beginning or begotten much in modern English. But everyone still knows what they mean. I'm not sure about that. To beget is to become the father of. To create is to make. And the difference is this. When you beget, you beget something of the same kind as yourself. A man begets babies. A beaver begets little beavers. And a bird begets eggs, which turn into little birds. But when you make, you make something of a different kind from yourself. A bird makes a nest. A beaver builds a dam. A man makes a wireless set. It's a little dated. Or he may make something more like himself than a wireless set, say a statue. If he's clever enough, if he's a clever enough carver, he may make a statue which is very like a man indeed. But of course, it is not a real man. It only looks like one. It cannot breathe or think it's not alive. Now that's the first thing to get clear. When God, what God begets is God. What man begets is man. What God creates is not God, just as what man makes is not man. That is why men are not sons of God in the sense that Christ is. They may be like God in certain ways, but, they're, but they are not things of the same kind. They're more like statues or pictures of God. The point that the people at the Council of Nicaea were trying to make, the point that's translated in the old versions of John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, or his one and only son, the Greek is simply only, but, but like only, 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 <laughs> like no other only, just this one like this, only begotten son of God, that's why begotten was used, so it's of God. So he is of God. He is divine. That's the point there. And that one today, Athanasius spent his life defending that proposition from the Council of Nicaea at great cost to himself. Arius was a very clever 
heretic. He was clever in the sense that he wrote wonderfully well, great poetry and prose, great lyric and music. And he put his views of Christ to music in a way that only Madison Avenue could in these days. And so he popularized his theology by way of jingle, by way of music. And people would sing it and believe it. And thus Athanasius had his work cut out for him, his theologian to come. And there were many times that he was exiled because of his work, but he hung in there. We owe him as one of the great fathers of the faith a great debt for his heart for the work that he did, how God used him to protect this great doctrine of the church. Just as a quick aside, we'll get into this more in chapter 2. But we face Arians in our own day, not only that they are not orthodox in their view of Christ, but they're very clever. Some of the best writers today are people who are writing things that are not quite right. Yet they're entertaining and they're cleverly done. And that's a great danger to us. Well, we'll do that later. So, Paul comes now in this church and he lays out for them this great expression of who Jesus is. And I have to tell you that I melt before this passage. Probably the reason I just took a half an hour to give you some history is because I don't have the words to say what this means. Think of all these things it says of Jesus, of this one who walked, who lived, who breathed in the flesh. People touched him, saw him. This was who he is. We will meet him one day. Because in his risen, the risen Lord Jesus Christ is eternally God-man. So we'll see him in glory. And I've met some really, really famous people. I've met some really, really terrific people. Nothing compared. I can't say about anybody what this is. He's the image of the invisible God. A little word image in Greek is the word icon. We talk about icons all the time. We have them on our computer screens. There they are. It's an icon. What is that? What is the representation of what's there? And if you click on it, what do you get? You get what's there. And so Jesus is the image, the icon of the invisible God. There's a sense in which you click on Jesus. What do you get? You get God. So he could say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Who can say that? I mean, what does that even mean? We have a sense about what that, that means. But, but let's not be so whatever it would be to just kind of take that and move on. But, but pause for a minute in humility and say, wow, he's the image of the invisible God. He said, look at me, you see God. The firstborn of all creation. This is one of the expressions that got Arius on his heresy. Because he read that and said, well, it must mean if he's the firstborn among creation, then he was born first. And so he must be a created being. But that can't be true, not only from everything we know of Scripture, but even what's to come. Because the next expression is for by him, really better probably in him, all things were created. So how could a created one create all things? 
So Paul knows that he's not trying to say that he's a created being. So what does he mean by firstborn of all creation? I believe if you have an NIV, it says firstborn over all creation. That's an interpretation, but it's a good one. Because in scripture, firstborn doesn't necessarily even refer to birth order. It refers to something else. It can refer to birth order, for instance, as the firstborn. Because we read through the Old Testament, the firstborn got a double inheritance. Why? Because it was the firstborn's responsibility to maintain, to assure, to ensure that that inheritance continued throughout all generations. So he had a responsibility, not only for his own, but even for more, a double inheritance, more than everybody else. So that he was going to, he was the one to be the steward over all of that, to make sure that 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 wealth of the family continued on, that it wasn't squandered. Because as firstborn, that meant that he had priority, he was special. He was in some real sense supreme over all the others. Israel in the Old Testament is referred to God's firstborn. But we know it wasn't the first established nation. Israel wasn't really established until Mount Sinai. They had come from an established nation called Egypt. If if this were in terms of time, Egypt would have been firstborn or maybe some other nation. But it wasn't. By By Israel being God's firstborn, it meant that this is special. This nation is the nation through whom I will work. This is the head nation, if you will. David was called God's firstborn. But we know he was the youngest of Jesse's sons. In Psalm 89, it speaks of David. Verse 20 says, I found David my servant. With my holy oil, I've anointed him so that my hand shall be established with him and so forth. Then verse 27, and I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. And so when Paul refers to Jesus as the firstborn of all creation, he's saying he's the highest. He's the supreme one. He's sovereign over all of creation. And why does he get to be sovereign over all creation? Well, because he's eternal. He's God. He is the creator of all that is. Verse 16, for in him or by him, all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. That means he's the architect of it all, he's the builder of it all, and he's the owner of it all. Rarely do any of us build our own homes, we go out and get builders. And builders usually build for somebody else to their specifications. But all this is in Jesus. He knew all the specs. He knew exactly how it was to be. He knew exactly how it was to be used. He, He knew exactly its purpose, what it would look like and everything. And so he built it. It, It's in him. There's, There's nothing created that was not created by him. John speaks of that in his prologue to his gospel that I read of, uh, for our call to worship. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. How else can you say it? Everything that is, is from him. And then he gets very mysteriously, but very detailed. He said, all things, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Now, when Paul uses that expression, he uses it not only of earthly nations and rulers, but also of spiritual rulers and authorities. He uses that in the classic passage in Ephesians chapter 6 that talks about powers and principalities and powers when he's talking about evil 
All of that was created by Jesus. Not evil, it fell, but he made it, which means he's still sovereign. He's still Lord over it all. It is not more powerful than he. Nothing is more powerful than he. And so he is, again, mysteriously, don't ask me how to explain this, he is mysteriously working all things together for good for those who love him and are the called according to his purpose, his purpose of conforming his people to his own image. And he can do that. Why? Because he made it. Why? He's over everything. Nothing is more powerful than him. Trust nothing, no one else. Because everything has been created through him, by means of him, for him, for his very purpose. He is before all things, and all things hold together in him. He's the glue that holds everything together. You know the classic line, um, uh, I think, therefore I am. No, 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 no. He is, therefore we are. He stops, we're done. And so is everything else. And so he's holding it all together. We needn't fear. Psalm 46. Though the earth gives way, though the mountains fall into the sea. Don't be afraid. Why? Because he holds it all together. It isn't random. It isn't just on its own. He is sustaining it all. So he is the sovereign one over all creation. Next expression. And he's the head of the body of the church. So he's not only sovereign over all creation, he's sovereign over the new creation, over the church. He's, he's the head, meaning he's the authority. He's the one in control. He's the supreme one. He's the, thing to whom, he's the one to whom all else submits. And as the head, it means he's inseparable from the body, but distinct from the body. Your head isn't your body. If someone punches you in the stomach, they hit you in the body. If somebody punches you in the head, they hit you in the head. It's attached, but separate. We know that. So he's the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning. It began with him. The firstborn from the dead, that is, he is sovereign, supreme over not only creation, but sin and death. Firstborn from the dead. He conquered sin and death, so that in everything he might be preeminent. He's first in rank. He's first in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Now next Sunday we're going to tackle that verse 20, what it means to reconcile to himself all things. So hang on to that. Just let me tell you, it doesn't mean that everyone is going to be saved. But he's the reconciler of all that's going to be reconciled. There's no reconciliation with God and God's ways and God's righteousness apart from him. He did all of that by making peace through the blood of the cross. Now, we'll spend more time on this. But the question is, what value is it? for us to believe this. One writer put it like this first. If Christ is the supreme Lord of all on whom all other heavenly powers depend, that is, he's the creator, so all heavenly powers depend upon him. If Christ is the supreme Lord of all on whom all other heavenly powers depend, then he cannot require assistance from any of these dependent authorities 
in order to bring God's, God to people and people to God. He's sufficient. He's the sufficient Savior because he's the supreme Lord. In other words, if he can make everything and if everything is dependent upon him, then why do we think we need anyone other than him to bring us to God? Why would he be independent and then dependent? Second point. If Christ is the power which sustains the whole universe from remote beings to its final goal, is it reasonable to doubt his power to sustain the individual believer from conversion to glory? In other words, if he's going to sustain all of physical creation from beginning to end, don't you think he can sustain you and me from beginning to end? Trust him. It's a great expression. A deep instinct has always told the church that our safest eloquence concerning the mystery of Christ is our praise. Let me say that again. A deep instinct has always told the church that our safest eloquence concerning the mystery of Christ is our praise. That is, just fall before him and worship him as this one who is God in the flesh. Grab a hold of him. The significance here, the the value here is, is our own assurance, of course, but not only that. But Paul had just prayed that we walk worthy of Christ, fully pleasing to him. Well, is he worthy of that? Is he worthy of our utter devotion? Is he worthy of our utter loyalty? Is he worthy of our joyful obedience? How can you read this and not say yes? Thus, for those among us who are young, begin now to follow after Christ. Don't waste years. Don't waste months. Don't waste days. Don't waste minutes. Who else? is worthy of your allegiance, of your life, of your trust. For those who have fallen away, for those who once walked with him, maybe here you may know of them, go to them, pray for them. May they not waste life. And for those of us walking with him, though sometimes feeling as if it's barely, hang on. He's hanging on to you, and he will help you. Let's pray. Father, pray for me and for us that we would grab a hold of who he is. Lord Jesus, continue to reveal yourself to us, and please help us. There are many in our congregation in these days who are Struggling, we pray for them. We pray for Dean Barnum's daughter, Megan, with a brain tumor. Um, Continue to be with her during these tests. Pray for Kim Hermas and the death of her father. Uh, Help her father in her grief and her family, Daniel. And her mom battling cancer, we pray for her as well. Father, others suffering various 
griefs and difficulties. Give us a picture of Jesus, this very one who's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Give us comfort to know that all has been made in him and through him and for him, that he will exalt himself, that we'll see it. So I pray you take away fear, anxiety. Work through our pain in such a way that strengthens us and gives us great faith. Father, we thank you for the good report of Janice Edmondson from her surgery and Jane Nutell from hers. We continue to pray for them that you would bring healing to their bodies and bless them. For those who are uh, involved in missions and from our church, we pray for Megan Megley as she ministers through the Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Uganda. Father, be with her. Thank you for our love and love for her, relationship with her. So be with her, God. For Marcus Brooks as he travels the world, um, introducing people to Jesus, we pray that you would keep him, help him, and that the truth of Christ would shine from all that he does. For Matt and Corey Podzis on the campus of KU, thank you for them and their lives, their hearts. And be with them. Strengthen them. Cause them to present Christ to students. And Holy Spirit, glorify Jesus through their work that many would come to know him and walk with him. And Father, for us as a church, we are grateful for Jesus. We give you thanks for he is the one who has qualified to share in this inheritance. He is the one who has transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. This light that is in him, him being the king of this kingdom. For in him we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Thank you. And this we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand.